Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Saints, would you join me in prayer? Our triune God, we come to you now and we are thankful that you have given to us the Lord's Day Sabbath that we may come and rest and we rest in the finished and completed work of our Christ. We give to you now, Lord, all of who we are. We ask, Lord, that you would give enlightenment to our minds, that you would give faith, Lord, and love to our hearts, that you would help our eyes to see and our ears to hear all that Christ has to say for us, his church. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Please be seated. Amen. Well, I do greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath. It is uh, wonderful to be with you all here this morning. I bring you greetings also from Reformation Bible Church in Bakersfield, California. We, my family and I, we are blessed to, to be here to worship with you all this morning. Your pastor, Joe, and you, whether you know it or not, Emmaus, have been a great uh, blessing to us in Bakersfield. And we thank God for each and every one of you. Today, with God's help, we shall seek to answer the question, what is worship? Well, this sermon is the first in a short series of, of sermons that the elders of RBC have begun surrounding the doctrine of liturgy. And I do believe that the 100th Psalm, uh, though we will not give a full exposition of the Psalm this morning, is foundational for any who are seeking to know the answer to the question, what is worship? And so this morning I have five points for our consideration. Let's begin. Number one, what is worship? We have already read this morning Psalm 100, 1 through 4. Well, actually, 1 through 5. And as we begin, it's important, saints, that each of us acknowledge that for many of us, and I've had the, the pleasure to talk to some of you on the side a few moments ago, when we hear the word worship, we often have presuppositions about what it means to worship. For many of us, we come to the doctrine of worship with certain traditions and even certain preferences. We must, by the help of the Holy Spirit, submit all of our presuppositions, all of our traditions, and even all of our preferences to God and his word. In short, God tells us what true worship is. God regulates our worship. And any worship that has not been prescribed by God is not worship. As we seek to answer this question, what is worship then? We will do so in, in two senses. Uh, in the first sense, in the general sense. What is worship? 
the basic definition of the word worship, it's a combination of two words, worth or worthy and ship. Uh, worth or worthy, it's obviously that which we ascribe significant value to. It is that which is highly appreciated, uh, that which is highly thought of. It is that which is most honorable. Uh, that is what we believe uh, is worthy of value. The second ship, uh, not like the ship that is on the sea, but rather it, it is the quality of something. It's the quality of, it's the condition of. Putting them together, it's the act of ascribing value to someone or something. Uh, the manner of offering a, a certain type of quality of value to certain, a certain something or someone. It's ascribing value to something or someone. Worship, then, if we were to take it in our context, worship is, and this is an important word, worship is the act. It is the act of highly appreciating. I'm going to say the word again. It's the act of highly thinking of. It's the act or action of honoring God with great honor. That is worship in, in the general sense. The psalmist, inspired by God, calls all the earth, notice that, all the earth to shout joyfully to God, to serve as an act or action of worship, serve the Lord with gladness. Uh, do not serve the Lord with a kind of bitter attitude, not with bitter servitude, and not with reluctant servitude, but with a servitude that has gladness of heart. This is worship. Psalm 29, 2, ascribe to the Lord glory do his name. Worship in with the Lord in holy attire. Uh, ascribe simply means this. It means render unto the Lord. Give unto the Lord. Uh, regard the Lord as. Give to the Lord the glory that is due to him. We all know glory. We've heard it. Uh, time and time again in our church, haven't we? Glory is weightiness. Glory is weightiness. It's, it's weightiness. Not, uh, it's, it's, it's something that of infinite value. And not speaking monetarily, though. Something of infinite value, but being more precious than, than anything. It could be called then priceless. Something that is so precious, someone that is so precious, that it is priceless. That they are priceless. Glory is declaring that God is worthy of being highly valued, so highly valued that he is priceless, so precious that he is priceless. Worship is honoring God. Therefore, what we are doing this morning, I pray, is highly esteeming, ascribing to the Lord all of the weightiness that is due to his name. Psalm 96, 7, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord, give to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. The psalmist again calls for all people to ascribe glory to God. Now, let me be clear as we're moving forward. In our worship, when we're talking about ascribing, giving something to God, we are not adding something to God that he lacks. Amen. God does not lack glory. He does not call us to give him something in order to, to make up for something lacking within him. God is boundlessly glorious. We confess God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself is alone 
in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in any need of any creature which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, and unto, and upon them. When we give glory to God, we we are not making up for something lacking in God. Rather, we are passionately with our hearts and confessing with our mouths, that's with our minds. We are reflecting back to God the glory which he infinitely and perfectly possesses. We give to God our hearts and devotion. We proclaim about him all that is infinitely and eternally true about him. The psalmist declares again, ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord glory of his name, worship the Lord in holy attire, tremble before him all the earth, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Worship, dear saints, is the act of giving to God all that is rightly due to him and to him alone. Touch about this, touch again on this in the fourth point. But it's important that we don't do this. When we come and worship God, we must not be passive receivers of worship. Instead, worship is an act, which means we are actively participating in offering to God all of the glory that is due to his name. There is an, there's an exit and return. There is a, a God giving to us, us giving back to God. Many of us have similar church backgrounds. And for many of us, we've heard so many people leave even good churches for this reason. I just wasn't getting anything from that church. You've heard that before, haven't you? I, ju- I just wasn't being fed That's a kind of passive reception, though, sometimes. It it may be true that that in some of those churches, they were not being fed. Hey, good to see you. In some of those churches, they were not being fed. But we must also be careful in our Reformed churches not to approach worship as passive receivers only when we speak about things such as the means of grace. We must be careful not to create a culture in which we simply attend to the means of grace, but we don't do so by faith. There is an active participation in order to receive the the benefits of the means of grace. Faith is required. You just being here will not benefit you any if you are not attending to these means by faith. If you are not actively engaging in worship, there is a receiving and giving back to the Lord that takes place when we worship. And there's another sense then of what it, what worship is. And it it is this worship is covenantal worship is covenantal. Psalm 100 uh, verse one shout joyfully to the Lord, serve the Lord. Know that the Lord himself is God. Uh, You notice there in Psalm 100 again and again, the covenant name of the Lord is used Yahweh. It is evoked time and time again and not for, for no reason. The psalmist is instructing us on the nature of worship. And that is that there is a covenantal nature to worship. Worship, true worship, is intimate. It is heartfelt. It is covenantal. Us and God, or I should say God and us. 
We can often major on the elements of worship. And the elements absolutely matter. But we must not neglect the intimate, intensely loving, covenantal communion that takes place between God and his people when we worship. Worship is not just ascribing to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship is an intimate covenant communion with God's people. The psalmist, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls all the earth to worship God. Uh, We give worship to God because we have first been called by our covenant Lord out of darkness. We do not call upon him first. He calls upon us. And when he does, we offer to him all of the worship that is due to his name. There is a, I hope that you see it this morning. I, I, I saw it. I was involved in it. There is a, a covenantal conversation that's taking place this morning. The Lord calls us by his word. We respond. The Lord calls us to observe and to recognize his law. We confess that we have sinned. The Lord tells us that, that grace and peace is extended to us and we, re, we respond in singing. The Lord then calls us to hear his word and we will respond with intimate supper. There is a covenantal conversation happening now between God and his people. Jonathan Cruz in his book, What Happens When We Worship, says, The call to worship is not just a way to begin the service. It's not even a way to reorient our minds to think about God, though it should do that. It is preeminently God through the minister calling his people into covenantal relationship, a covenantal conversation. Worship, then, is intimate. It is intimate communion, covenantal communion with you and God. God calls us to ascribe to him all of the glory that is due to him. And we respond. And when we do, there is intimacy between us and God when we worship. Why does this matter? Why uh, this morning as you've come to worship, why does it matter that you know what worship is? Uh, Young people, why do you need to know what worship is? Middle-aged people, why do you need to know older people? And let's just follow the, the pattern of the psalms, psalmist. All peoples. Why do you need to know what worship is? Because of the second point. Number two, we are created for worship. Shout joyfully to the Lord. All the earth. Know, verse three, that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us. And not we ourselves. The psalmist is not calling when he calls upon the earth. He's not calling for rocks or trees or animals or or even dirt of the earth to to worship God. Rather, the psalmist is calling for all of those whom God has made uniquely in his image to come and to offer worship to God. Again, Psalm 96, ascribe to the Lord, you families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. How, I wonder, brothers and sisters, is the psalmist inspired by God, able to make such a call. Not necessarily even an an invitation, a command. For all of the people on all of the earth to come and to offer worship to God. How so? It is because you and I have been created for the very purpose of worship. You have been made to worship God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, you all know the answer, question and answer. What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose for 
uh, your beginning and your end, the, your genesis and your terminus, if you will. Why do you exist? Young people, why do you exist? You exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If you're wondering, what's my purpose on this earth? Look no further. God declares to you from his word, he has made you to worship him. Why do you exist? To worship God and to enjoy him forever. For all people, for all tongues, for all nations, you exist to give God glory and to find satisfaction in him alone. I wonder, what is the most important thing that you will ever do? For some, the answer to that question is to be married. For others, the answer to that question is to have children. And still for others, it's to graduate from school, to, to get a good job, to, to find a forever home, to maybe uh, finally complete that collection of trinkets that we've been working on. Even for others, to have your name in bright lights. The fact is this, from God's word, the most important thing that you will ever do is worship. For a couple to be married and not worship God together is a failed marriage. For a couple to have children together and to not raise them to worship God is failed parenting. To achieve earthly success and not worship God in every single one of our endeavors, it's not success, it's failure. Worship is the most important thing that you and I will ever do. No matter what fills your days, no matter what fills your weeks, the most important thing that you will ever do is worship God. Because it is the very reason why you exist. You have been created in the image of God. Genesis 1.26, there is an overemphasis in order to accentuate the high privilege and calling that humans have being created in the image of God. God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There is an intentional redundancy in the explanation and manner in which man has been created in God's own image. We have been designed to worship our creator. We have been designed to yearn for, to, to long after, to desire, worship and giving it to God. God has made us as rational creatures. Uh, we have been created with a rational soul. We're not like four-footed creatures. We are not like winged birds. We are the apex of God's cre creation. God has placed in man a soul that longs for and has the ability to know him, to have fellowship with him and to worship him. That's why you exist. It's why you're here. It's why you've come this morning. John Calvin says there is within the human mind and indeed by natural instinct an awareness of divinity. This we take to be beyond con controversy to prevent anyone from taking refu refuge in the pretense of ignorance. God himself has implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. Calvin will go on to say that there is no region there is no city, there is no household that does not have a sense of deity inscribed inside of their hearts. Uh, theologians of old would call this the sensus divinitas, the sense of the divine. The, the innate 
understanding that all men are made in the image of God. The innate understanding that all men have been created to worship God. The apostle makes this same point from Romans 1. First, that all men know that they have been created by God and to worship Him. But they suppress this this knowledge in sin. And secondly, Romans 2, even those without a knowledge of God's written law live in obedience to God's law because God's law is written on their hearts. You've heard unbelievers say when they're searching, I just have a sense that there's something greater out there. There's something more out there. It's not cliche. They're revealing the sensus divinitas, that that they have been created with a sense of the divine, that, that God has created them to know him, and they know that they should offer worship to him. When man was created, he resided in the garden temple. He enjoyed unique, perpetual communion with God. His days were fulfilled in worship. His satisfaction was completely in his creator. One theologian says every theological reception, neurological, I should say, reception was stuffed with divine majesty when Adam was created. Even the beauty of Eden could not compare with the beauty of Yahweh. Man lived in perfect harmony with his creator and and enjoyed the very purpose for which he was created to worship God, to find satisfaction in God alone. It's why we live. And if you are living, seeking to find satisfaction in any one or anything other than God, then you will live unfulfilled. If your life is lived constantly seeking satisfaction in in places other than in Christ, you will constantly find yourself unfulfilled. You will constantly find yourself investing in empty stocks. You will constantly find yourself pouring water in broken in broken vessels, wells that cannot hold water. Our satisfaction is to be found in God and in God alone. But the reason why we look other places other than God for satisfaction, the reason why we offer worship to other things other than God is because we have, we have broken covenant with God. We have sinned against God. And now our understanding of satisfaction, it's corrupted. Now our understanding of where we should offer worship is corrupted. This leads us to our third point. Man has broken covenant communion with God. Man has broken covenant communion with God. Verse 3 of 100, Psalm 100. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Brothers and sisters, you know the first four commandments of the law, don't you? I'm sure you do. You shall have no other gods before God. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. What are these first four commandments? What are they but an indictment against man and his sin? They are an indictment against man's propensity to offer worship to places and people other than God himself. They are the sinful acts of false worship from a fallen people. When Satan tempted Eve and when Eve tempted Adam, the root of their rebellion was this, 
it was a deviation from true worship to idolatry. A, a deviation from worship to the one true God who was worthy of praise and worthy of worship to worship of self and worship of self-satisfaction. Man, in his disobedience, corrupted his own heart and deviated from the purpose of his existence to worship God and God alone. Man has put a greater value on himself now. Man has put more weight on himself, more honor on himself rather than on God. The first four commandments of God are a rebuke against man's rebellion to man's creative purposes. Man has put other gods before the one true God. Man has offered worship to created things rather than the creator. That man has taken God's name in vain by not highly esteeming God, by not ascribing to God the glory that is due his name, but ascribing glory to himself. Man has seen no value in the day that the Lord has given to us. But man has viewed this day as his own day and not the Lord's day. Philosopher James Smith argues, we order our lives around what we want. And whatever we want is that which we worship. Friends, even if you be present for worship, you are here now. And there is something outside of this worship, the worship that we are offering to God, the presence of God that we are now presently in. If you be in this holy place, in the midst of God's word being spoken to you, and there be something outside of this holy assembly that is calling you and that you long for, that is what we are truly worshiping. It's a heart posture, is it not? If while we are in the midst of worship, in the presence of God, in the midst of ascribing to the Lord glory that is due His name, the worship that we have been created to give, the worship that we should long to give, and if our hearts are divided, if our hearts are maybe even absent, though we be presently here, Whatever it is that is causing the conflict is that which we truly worship. Oh, dear saints, we all need the mercy and grace of God, do we not? The Lord has made it clear. There are no gods before him and there will be no gods after him. He knows not one. The Lord has made it clear. All the idols are dumb, says the Lord. They have no life within them. It's, it's amazing to me that we give so much of our time, our energy, our, our resources to these things that have no life. We give life to these things, hoping for life back, but they only can take life, not give it. That's what an idol does. It continually fools us into thinking that we're going to get something back, but we never do. It's what fooled the first man, Adam, thinking he was going to receive the beatific vision. Instead, he received exile and immediate death. They have no life in them. They have no life in them. Why has this happened? How has this happened? Sin has done this. We have committed sin. 
Dr. Dozal, James Dozal will say, sin, sin is, is not a thing. It's not a thing that has substance within. You can't go to a certain thing and say, that is sin. Sin is, is it, 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 it erupts from the heart. It, it comes from within man. We, we start to, to act out in sinful ways, but you can't grab a substance or a thing and say, this is sin. It's what we offer to it that becomes sin. It's what that comes out of us, hearts and minds. That's what sin. We've done this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. How is it that we have suppressed, pushed down, pushed back that which we innately know? What is the expression of our sin? Paul says, it's an exchange of truth. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And did what? And worshipped. And served the creature rather than the creator who was forever blessed. Amen. What is the, the evidence of this, this darkened heart? What's the evidence that, that we have pushed down that which we innately know? It is when we offer worship to that which deserves no worship. It is when we give glory to that which is not worthy of glory. When we exchange the truth of God for a lie. This is the foolish, foolish exchange of man. And it's offering worship where it does not belong. It's going from offering true worship to God, the only one worthy of worship, to offering worship to a creator who was unworthy of worship. Man now views himself as a center of the universe. The one who deserves to find satisfaction no matter however and wherever it is found. Whatever is most important in our lives will be the thing that we worship. It's the inverse way of saying worship is the most important thing that we will do. It's the inverse way of saying it because if we're not offering it to God, then it is not the most important thing that we will do. The fall of man in his declaration is this. Whatever I want, whatever I think is most important, that is what I will pursue because I am most important. My little ones have expressed that to me over the past four days. Life must revolve around them. God, please save them. Martin Luther says, whatever your heart clings to and whatever your heart confides in, that is your God. The world turns to creaturely things as their gods and chief of the creatures that the world turns to is self. Now, this is not good news. I did not come all the way from Bakersfield to just leave you there. Can this be remedied? Can this broken covenant of works be repaired? Our fourth point, the Father is seeking worshipers 
the father is seeking worshipers. And I, I, I could say that if the father is seeking worshipers, then the son is seeking worshipers. And if the son is seeking worshipers, then the spirit is seeking worshipers. Psalm 103, Psalm 100, verse 3. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Therefore, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. The covenant of works has been broken by sin and has left man without the ability, without the desire, and without true knowledge of coming to God, without God's divine initiation. We can't go to God unless God first comes to us. Can man be redeemed? Can man who is lost and dead in sin be found and restored to new life? Our Lord answers this question for us in his conversation that he has with a Samaritan woman by a well in John chapter 4. There's a conversation going on and the woman, by the providence of God, takes the conversation into the, the, the area of worship. Our Lord says to her, who was asking where should we worship, here or there, our Lord says, an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Our Lord says at the time, an hour is coming, and behold, the hour is now. That the Father is actively seeking worshipers. What kind of worshipers? The kind of worshipers, the kind of people who will worship God in spirit and in truth. The Father, by the Son and through the Spirit, is in pursuit of His elect. Why did God pursue you, saints? Uh, when someone asks you about your salvation, you should never say, I started looking for God. No. Instead, the scriptures proclaim that God looked for you. God was seeking you. You were the one, I was the one who was lost. And God came in his mercy and in his grace and sought us out. For what reason, though? So that his image bearers might be restored. And so that true worship might also be restored and rightly offered. You have been pursued by God so that you can worship Him in spirit and in truth. One must be converted. Let's get that out of the way. In order to offer true worship to God. Without conversion, there is no true worship. The Spirit blows where He wills. He takes the heart of stone, gives to His people a heart of flesh that longs to worship God. The statement by our Lord, the Father is seeking worshipers. It is unparalleled. There is, no, there is no other verse like that and no other statement like that in the whole of Scripture. Nowhere in any of Scripture does, this, does God say He's seeking anything. And the one time when God says that He's seeking something, it is His people for the purpose of worship. Does, not, does that not scream to you why you have been, why you have been made? Does, not, does, that, does that not scream to you why you are here? To worship God. 
to have a, a covenantal conversation with God. And here is Christ with this unconverted woman. And this woman is potentially trying to, to distract the holy gaze of our Lord from her infidelity. And inadvertently, providentially, she brings up the subject of worship. It's exactly where Christ wants her to go. Why? Because Christ is pursuing her. This woman who is having a conversation, trying to, to misdirect the Lord's gaze from her infidelity, has no idea that she is one of the worshipers that the Father is seeking. It may not have been at the forefront of her mind, but it was at the forefront of the mind of Christ. She asked the question, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You people, Jews, say that in Jerusalem, that is the place where men ought to worship. Where's the proper place of worship? Did she really care? Maybe not, but she's, she's evidencing something of the sense of the divine. She knows that she should be worshiping. She knows that there is a proper place to worship. This tells us that, that where we worship, how we worship, it matters to God. It, it's, it's, it, it does not not matter to God. It matters to God how we worship and where we worship. And, and Christ affirms this. But he does so in an interesting way. This woman was a Samaritan. She may have been ignorant about worship, but she knew that she should worship. Samaritans, as far as we know, when they worshiped, they offered enthusiastic worship to God. But their enthusiastic worship was devoid of truth. Our Lord says to this woman concerning worship, you worship what you do not know. The Samaritans rejected a great part of the Old Testament. Uh, they instituted their own scriptures. They instituted their own priesthood. They devised a worship that was pleasing to them. It was will worship. It was worship that was de designed to please man and not worship that was from the will of God. Their worship was what all of the unconverted offer to God. It is worship that pleases self. Worship that is offered in zeal. Uh, there is a, a, a new documentary that recently came out. Uh, it's, it's called Hillsong, I'm sorry, don't mean to do this, but it's called Hillsong Exposed. I highly recommend it because in this documentary, it's evidencing just very, this very fact. Worship that is full of zeal, but absent of truth. Worship that is full of zeal, but absent of truth. And we, Reformed Baptists, say, no, we, we must have truth. That is what truly informs our worship. Correct. But our Lord goes to the opposite end of the spectrum about the Jews and says something uh, as a rebuke about them as well. He says in verse 22 of John chapter 4, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Bear with me for a second. To the Jews was first revealed the gospel in seed form. To the Jews were sent the prophets. To the Jews was sent the law, the Holy Scriptures. From the Jews came the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. They were a privileged people. Our, our Lord, uh, while looking over Jerusalem, says to them, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you. Uh, one theologian says, it, it could also be said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you privileged people, you privileged people. But time and time again, you have rejected 
your Messiah. Our, our Lord makes a distinction. Worship of the Samaritans, worship full of zeal is not right, not true worship. And worship on the other side, worship just full of truth is not right. He says, but an hour is coming. He said, we worship what we know, but then says, but an hour is coming. And now is when the true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What was the mark of worship for the Jews? It was worship full of truth, but absent of zeal. Worship full of truth, but absent of spirit. It was holding to the letter, but it was merely form and not devotion. Our Lord would say, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts, it's their hearts are truly far from me. He would say about them, they are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. Orthodox in form, absent of faith, hope, and love. Lips that are divorced from heart is not true worship. What offends our Lord when we worship? What is, what is offensive to our Lord? It's this, it's, it's hypocritical worship. It's worship that is pretentious. You know how that is. Uh, when someone is not who they claim to be, when uh, they're not keeping it real, if you will, they're offensive to you because you know that they are not who they are claiming to be. This is why our Lord has said he had enough of their burnt offerings. He had enough of their sacrifices. What did he desire? A heart. A broken and contrite heart is what God desires. We can offer to him our forms all day long, but if we are not also offering to him our heart, then it is not true worship. Saints and friends, what are the errors and pitfalls of worship? Very simply, zeal without knowledge or knowledge without zeal. It is truth without the spirit or spirit divorced from truth. True acceptable worship is rational. It engages your mind. And from the mind flows to the heart. The, 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 the will will follow the, the, the mind. Worship is a conscious activity, brothers and sisters. It is, an, listen to me, it is an act, an action in which we offer to God that which He deserves. What does it require of us? It requires a heart or mind and heart being actively engaging in offering worship to God. Do you know that even as you are listening right now to God's word, you are worshiping? Uh, I was raised in a tradition in which um, praise was the fast songs, worship was the slower songs. Oh, you're laughing at yourselves. Uh, I'm with you. Becoming reformed and even beyond just reform, becoming orthodox, becoming a Christian, 
learning that that the whole of what we do when we gather for worship is worship. Therefore, even your engaging now your mind and your heart to what is being said is your offering to God in worship because it is not me who is speaking to you. It is what we believe a voice within a voice. It is God himself speaking to you, his people. You know what an unconscious activity is, don't you? It's something that requires no thought. Something that happens rather naturally. Something that that you do without putting much effort into it. The most immediate example that I can think of is breathing. Most of you, if you're wise, are doing it now. But you have just now become conscious of the fact that you're breathing. Some of you are hearing how loud you're breathing. Some of you are just realizing, whoa, I am breathing. I've been so quiet. It's required no thought of yours, though. It's just, breathing is such an unconscious activity that you can do it while you sleep. It requires no effort truly on your part. It's something that your body is naturally doing. When we worship, especially during the priest's word, we must not take an unconscious approach to our worship in hearing the word of God. You lean in. The pastor is speaking, but you know that when Pastor Joe is speaking, it is really Christ speaking through him. And so you're leaning in. Speak to me, Christ. Say uh, all that you have to say to me today. Uh, We must come to the priest's word as Samuel. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. But if we take an unconscious approach, if we take an approach that says, I'm just going to breathe and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take in the nice cool air and, and I'm going to enjoy my, my nice uh, soft seat, uh, it can be very tempting to simply drift away in our minds and then be brought back. Where, where are we? Where, what, what, what's, what's going on? I've heard Pastor Joe preach. He doesn't yell like I do, so you're probably going to be awake for the most of the service. But it can be very easy to allow our minds to go somewhere while God himself is speaking to us. Truth is being expounded. And if we lack zeal, then we will leave this place no different than when we entered. Truth is being expounded. And if we are not also engaging in truth and receiving it into our lives, then we also will be no different than when we entered. We, we need both zeal and truth, truth and zeal. True worship engages the mind and the heart. For such worshipers, the Father is seeking. Our minds are to engage with God, and, and this is to be a conscious activity, actively involving our minds. We are rational creatures. God, God has given us His Word so that we might know Him and know Him more intimately. And, and let me just say, because I'm a pastor as well and have been for now the past 12 years in our church. We must not also come and only have our minds sparked when we hear something that we say, oh, I I didn't know that. Oh, that's something new to me. You are in a great church. Your pastor and the elders here serve you well. They preach God's word faithfully. I have benefited myself from Pastor Joe and his ministry. But if while we are here, we are only trying to catch the nuggets of things that we don't know, then we do a disservice to true worship. 
I pray that the things that you've heard today, you already know. I pray that everything that you have heard today, you already knew. If we are only here to hear what we didn't know, then we commit the error of Jerusalem worship. No zeal. And if we come and only say, Pastor, move me. Light my fire today. Get me fired up. Then we commit the sin, the error of Samaritan worship. The man of God has been called to stand before the people of God and to be faithful to God's word. Not try to spend all week coming up with something that you've never heard before. I pray that what you hear, you've heard before. That what has been said, has been said before. That you've heard it from prophets. That you've heard it from the apostles. That you've heard it from the apostolic fathers, the apologists, the patristics, the medievals, the reformers, the puritans, the particular baptists. And most importantly, that you've heard all of these things from Christ himself. We preach what is ancient. We preach not what is new and cutting edge. We preach that which has been passed down to us. And when we do, let us engage our minds and our hearts in true worship to our triune God who is boundless in mercy. He has decreed to save a people for his own glory. He has sought you and me out when we were not even looking for him, nor did we have a desire for him. This is accomplished in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was the purpose of his work? Worship. Our triune God redeems men in the incarnation of Christ to restore image bearers so that we might offer to him true worship. In closing, why does all of this matter? Number five, because worship is the telos terminus for all of God's people. Verses 4 and 5 shout to the Lord. His loving kindness is forever. When we worship saints, I, I hope that you know this. I'm sure you do. We are in the presence of God. Do you know that Hebrews chapter 10 calls us to come by faith with confidence? To come with sincere hearts full of assurance. Where? into a, a side building in Emmaus Christian Fellowship. Well, this is where we meet. But when we get here, where do we go? The writer of the Hebrews says that we enter into the holy place. Let me ask you a question. Where is the holy place? Here? This building? Or is it there? Let your minds and your hearts be so overwhelmed by this particular fact. God says that when we gather for worship, we ascend, Hebrews 12, we ascend Mount Zion. When we gather for worship, Hebrews or Peter, we are a, a, a holy temple, holy stones being brought together and we are in the holy place of God even now so that when we sing, our voices are joined with the angels and with the saints who have been confirmed. When we hear God's word, we are amening that which is said in heaven. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are fellowship and we are truly dining with Christ. You are not here. The scriptures say you have not come to Mount Sinai. You, not, not you will go. 
You have come. You are here now in the presence of God in Mount Zion. To Zion we go when we worship. When we gather for worship, you can say to your kids rightly, you can say to your, your wife rightly, and, and whoever can say to, to yourself, to Zion we go to worship God. We come and we gather to meet with him literally. He does not come down to us, which was in my former tradition, we invite him. No, he invites us up to him. We go into the presence of God. He brings us up. There should be, and there is, at the call to worship, there is a, a holy mountain climbing activity that we, the people of God, take when we gather for worship. Yesterday I was in Idlewild. and have been for the past few days. And being around the town, everyone seems to be going, hiking somewhere. They're all wearing backpacks and they're all wearing the shoes. And they're readying themselves to go up. It's what you did this morning. As you prepared the day before, when you laid out your clothes, when you found your Bible, when you got your notebook, when you made sure that there was gas in your car, when you did all of the things to prepare yourself to do what? To climb Zion and to meet with God Almighty himself. You are in the presence of God. Oh, and to under, underestimate this moment. To take an unconscious approach to this moment. Oh, it would be detrimental to your soul. Come, worship him. There is a covenantal meeting that God is calling you to. God, the, the, the first place in this covenant and his people who he has called to worship him. We ascend Mount Zion. We enter his courts. We, think about the, the imagery of it. It's true that the psalmist from Psalm 100 is saying, enter his gates, his gates, not these gates. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts, the, the inner place of God, with praise. We used to sing this song growing up. I will enter his courts with thanksgiving. I will enter. It was, it was, I didn't realize what was going on. We are being brought into the presence of God. Oh, this verse and this song means so much more to me now today. You have been made for worship. And the end of all, the, the telos, the, the, the final, uh, ex, not experience, experiences for Disneyland, the, the, the final enjoyment of your life will be an eternal one that you have with our triune God. I'm teaching through Revelation, and in Revelation chapter 5, there is this, this wonderful display of what eternal worship will look like as all of the saints, all of the four living creatures, all of the apostles, and all of the, you name them, they are there. They are offering a sevenfold blessing to God, and it will be an eternal one. You people of God have been made for worship, and it will be the final enjoyment of your very existence on this earth, but one that you will enjoy forever in the new Jerusalem. But you don't have to wait. You and I receive a taste of heaven every single Lord's day. You and I receive a, a taste of the wonder of heaven every single Lord's day. We will not be preoccupied with gates of pearl or streets of gold. 
We will not be preoccupied with those who have gone before us. But we will be enmeshed in the wonder and glory and praise of God alone. And we can start now. Our public gatherings are to resemble, they, uh, they are to be a type of dress rehearsal for the eternal state. When God meets with his people for worship, there should bear among us a heavenly quality to our worship. Not an experience again. True fellowship and communion with God. So at the end of this time of worship, we could say like Jacob, surely the Lord is in this place. Haven't you felt that sometimes, brothers and sisters? When your pastor is preaching and you want to say to him, Joe, Pastor Joe, don't stop preaching. Don't stop preaching. Keep speaking God's word. Keep speaking God's word. Haven't there been times of fellowship that you've had with the saints that you have not wanted to leave? That, that it has gone dark and, and uh, the, the other church is saying, we've got to close the gates and, and you just don't want to leave the fellowship of the saints. That will be what the eternal state will be like, absent of sin. Oh, and I can't wait to go there with you. We are worshiping now in Zion. And we will one day be there eternally. Sin will be no more. The sting of death will be gone. And we will rejoice before our triune God for eternity. What is worship? It is covenantal communion with God. Where we offer to him all that he is worthy of. With our minds and our hearts spirit and truth would you pray with me saints dear God your word has been spoken and I pray faithfully I pray Lord that that which was said would be in a line with would be aligned Lord with what you have said that you would help the saints here to rejoice when they hear that bell to come and to worship, that it would be a call for all of us to ascend Mount Zion to bask in the presence of Almighty God. Oh, dear God, let that be true for every person, young, middle-aged, old, who have ears to hear, that they would long to give to you that which they have been created for, Worship in spirit and in truth. To you alone and to you, uh, our triune God, be the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.